You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. I commit that I will, in fact, pick a woman to be vice president. There are a number of women who are qualified to be president tomorrow. I would pick a woman to be my vice president. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Ezra Klein. Uh, we are going to talk about the Veep Stakes, the great political journalism summer cliche, because uh, the, the time is right for that. Uh, but first, we do we do want to delay that a little bit and make you listen to some more uh, public policy talk. And, you know, something that, that I was interested in is that Ross Douthat did this column, which I think would annoy some people because it was coming from Ross Douthat, who's a conservative, who maybe doesn't actually care about this stuff, uh, but voicing concerns that, you know, I associate with sort of uh, African-American leftists like like Adolf Reed or, or Cedric Johnson, uh, which was that this sort of racial politics, the, the outpouring of people in the streets, but also in social media and in the corporate world on behalf of Black Lives Matter uh, represents, at least on some level, a co-optation by corporate America of progressive energy in a way that you didn't see when young people were rallying for Bernie Sanders, for example, who was talking about economic justice. And, you know, I mean, I think there's there's like a number of different ways in which you could view this. I mean, if you look at the actual protest leaders, they do, of course, have a very sort of robust social and economic justice agenda. So I, I, I think it's, you can schematize this stuff sort of too much. Uh, but I do think it's true on another level that you see after George Floyd's death, a lot of sort of elite preoccupation with introspection type issues and representation in selective college faculties, th things like that, that in a weird way for a mass social movement, to me at least, are almost like alarmingly unthreatening to the people who kind of really hold power in society. So a couple of thoughts on this, and I want to read a, a part of Ross's piece here to just give a, a flavor of his argument. I think it's called, um, I should have written this down, but like something about Bernie Sanders losing for the second time. Uh, but so Ross writes, 
quote, the longer arc of the current revolutionary moment may actually end up vindicating the socialist critique of post-1970s liberalism, that it is obsessed with cultural power at the expense of economic transformation, and that it puts the language of radicalism in the service of elitism. So his idea, sort of as you're signaling here, Matt, is that He's basically saying that Bernie Sanders ran um, or much of his career was built on this idea that you needed to sever class politics from identity politics fundamentally, and that um, he failed to do that to some degree or another in 2020, which is maybe why he lost. But you're seeing sort of why that wasn't possible now, because it's identity politics that actually unifies the Democratic Party and Ross's view. I think this is wrong on a number of levels, but the primary one is that I think it actually gets the direction of the causality reversed. So let's just put it like very simply. When you think about all of the companies putting up Instagram stories about systemic racism inside their organizations, and you think about why they are doing that, right? Which customers and which employees are they trying to appeal to? And then you think about well, what would have happened if those customers and those employees who are fundamentally urban millennials were the people who controlled the Democratic primary? The answer is Bernie Sanders would have won the Democratic primary. And if you ask what would happen if they were the primary voting bloc in American politics, the answer is Bernie Sanders would be president and like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would be House Speaker. And so one of the things happening here is the way I would frame what Ross is saying is that he's putting two things in tension that are actually not in tension, although they can appear to be. Both the sort of revived socialist moment and the woke capitalism moment are actually two different organizations, ecosystems trying to appeal to the same thing, which is a much more left-wing, rising, diverse electorate. And really importantly for this, and there is a tremendous amount of polling data here, and, and I was talking, data for progress was sharing some of it with me. Like, if you just look at how people feel about, say, systemic racism, and then see what that predicts about their healthcare views, like, you will find that the Part of the American public that wants socialist economics is extremely racially uh, conscious. Um, and the part of America that is much more racially uh, conservative, the part that does not believe in systemic racism, they're not that economically left. Um, there's been always this idea that the true base of left-wing economic power in this country will somehow like be the white working class, but that's actually just not true. It's the very people who are out, like particularly young people at Black Lives Matter rallies who also want to see a tremendous change in our, our, our economic organizations. And I think that you, you have to understand a lot of different parts of society are trying to appeal to them simultaneously. And as they get more and more power, they will all change. But the thing that Ross is trying to place in tension here, I'm just not convinced are, are, are actually in tension. I think they're expressions of the same underlying trend. I agree with that, right? As a, as a question of sort of electoral strategy, right? I mean, the idea that there's a stark trade-off between trying to appeal to people who are interested in left economic ideas and trying to appeal to to racial justice ideas, uh, th that's wrong. I mean, it, it, exactly exactly what, what you said is correct. I, I still do think that it matters on the level of ideas, though, right? Like sort of elite-led um, constructions of political agendas and what they put on the table that, like, I, I just 
to exclusively talk about New York Times uh, articles today. You know, Nicole Hannah-Jones did this big, splashy magazine piece um, about reparations. It's called, you know, What is Owed? I read that yesterday. And then today I read a much less splashy uh, David Leonhardt piece about the black-white wage gap. And what Leonhardt concludes is that the, the, the wage gap narrowed a lot between 1950 and 1980, and that that was primarily due to things like big minimum wage increases that happened in in the 60s, and that the wage gap then widened again post-1980, and that's primarily due to uh, general inegalitarian trends, right? Weakening of labor unions, erosion of the real value of the minimum wage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is basically just to say that like Leonhardt is making the case, as many people have over the years, that the best way to close these systemic racial gaps is in fact through a sort of race neutral redistributive policy. And then Hannah Jones's article is very much the opposite of that, right? She's arguing the other view of this, which people have also held a lot through the years, which is that, you know, you see these disparities at every point in the educational attainment spectrum, that uh, New Deal programs were sort of structured to redistribute around African-Americans, and that really you need this kind of racially specific agenda to enact things. And there is a tension there, right? The the tension exists in the sense that like agenda crowding is a real thing. You can only mobilize for so many sort of goals at once. There are only so many things that can be on the cover of your magazine and other things sort of have to go in, in the email inbox. And I think that that is a little bit of a bona fide tension. And I think... I think there is some truth on both sides of that argument. I, I'm a, a nuanced person. Um, but that the bulk of the evidence to me does suggest that a sort of, it, it's not a class politics instead of a race politics. It's that the most effective way to address the bulk of the racial inequities in the United States is by addressing the like basic structure of the welfare state and of the housing market and of educational institutions and not through these kind of, I think, sort of political dead end of like, well, we're going to try to get everybody a $400,000 check. But this is where, in my view, it probably doesn't work to have this conversation primarily by analyzing things in New York Times published in the past seven days. Um, so like a couple, a couple thoughts on this. To again, go back to Bernie Sanders, who is a subject of, of, of Ross's piece and, and in my view, acts as a, a useful player in this debate. Bernie Sanders had a very – like both became much more woke in 2020 than he was in 2016 and was more woke on racial issues in 2016 than he had been at other points in his career. But nevertheless, in 2020, had an expansive class-based agenda that had racial justice components in it, but he wasn't running on reparations. There were other candidates who had – Put themselves as more open to reparations. Now, I'm a little bit worried about doing this from memory, but I think Julian Castro had spoken more about it. Some of them actually said they were open to reparations and then proposed um, race-neutral policies, which was a weird trend in the Democratic primary for a little while, with like Kamala Harris um, selling an earned income tax credit increase as potentially reparations, and Cory Booker talking about a like a colorblind um, universal basic wealth program as reparations. But nevertheless, like young African-Americans backed Bernie Sanders. And I think this is true even in corporations. Like 
media isn't a bad example here. New media organizations have had a wave of unionizations in the past couple of years, including Vox Media. And Vox Media unionized, I would say, in many ways for the same reason that it is also like as a corporate structure trying to take issues of race very seriously because its worker base are young left-leaning millennials. And so by the the same nature that like the Vox leadership wants to show that it cares about systemic racism and does, I think, care about systemic racism, it also, like when the union organizers came, um, like it found an open door in the staff and like the the leadership understood that it was not going to be able like if it even wanted to fight on this it was not going to be able to win a fight to stop unionization so like once again like i am not saying there i am a believer in reparations but to the extent that people are going to like as you say choose agendas i think like what you see is there's a very big convergence um in young liberals of like many different races around candidates who are selling big, expansive um, class-based policies. Uh, I, I think if you look, for instance, in the House and you look at some of the candidates who are most out front on issues of racial justice, they are also pushing vast like Medicare for all ideas. They are pushing really, really big universal child allowance ideas. I think there is a continuous effort to frame or argue for a tension between a class-based agenda and a race-based agenda. I, I don't want to say there is no tension there or has never been, but I also think this is a little bit of a weaponized argument. And I'm not accusing Ross of doing this, but I, I, I do think it's like an effort to try to like pick apart parts of the Democratic coalition when in truth, these things go together. And like I promise you that if you regress support for reparations, you are going to find tremendous levels of support for Medicare for all. And because Medicare for all is just massively more popular than reparations, the candidate who gets elected by that coalition is going to start with Medicare for all. And like that's going to be supported by many of the same people because it really would matter. And that's true for a bunch of other uh, policies in this, in this area. So I just... I think there's something in political debate where we always want to see things as intention, like one has to win out. And like, as you say, in priorities, like to some degree that that may be true, but these things are are ecosystems. Like I'm, I, I don't know. I've never asked Nicole Hannah-Jones how she feels about Medicare for all, but like I have a suspicion of where she comes down on that. And I have a suspicion of where she comes down on a bunch of these issues. And I think it would be like towards the more left-wing candidates um, on class as well. I feel like you're you're out debating me here, uh, but by continually sort of shifting the argument from an argument about ideas to an argument about the uh, demographic composition of the electorate, right? Because I guess, like, I definitely agree with you. It is true that the most racially left wing people also tend to be the most economically left wing people, and that at sort of a, a minimum, right? I mean, we know because you could look at the Congressional Black Caucus, right? And, and most of those people come from majority minority districts. And so you can see like what kind of representatives they send. Um, it is all Democrats. It's disproportionately progressive caucus members. Some of them are moderate. But like if the way Congress worked was that the right flank of Congress was a moderate CBC member, the universe would be much, much, much more left wing than it is. But the question I think that like continually arises in America is like, why don't things happen, right? Like, why don't you get big change in a system that is full of veto points and a system where money talks and, and things like that? And I think that like politics is hard, which I think is something that, that we both agree on, that agenda setting like really does 
matter and that there are ways that popular discontent gets channeled in different kinds of directions, right? And there was a vision, a a Bernie Sanders vision, where he was going to have mass mobilization and people in the streets, and that was going to crush the special interests and deliver us Medicare for all or minimum wage hike or, or something like that. And I never found that to be all that plausible, but it was it was a thought, right? Like it, it was an idea. And Ross's point, which I think is right, is that we've seen that people really can come at be brought out in the streets for a sort of, I don't know, I mean, it's an ambitious agenda for, for racial justice, but also not always entirely clear what it amounts to, right? When you can have like elected officials in the city of Santa Monica saying they want to tackle structural racism, when like Santa Monica just just is structural racism. Like like that's what it's that's what it's there for. That's why it exists. And I really wonder like what any of this is going to amount to. Like a tremendous mobilization of people, incredible amounts of energy and passion. And you see kind of like poles shift on this, that, or the other thing. And yet it, it seems to me to have very little like policy impact because it is so diffuse and has been channeled into these kind of like narrow eddies of, I saw this thing where someone was like, well, you should take your kids to see a black dentist. And I feel comfortable making fun of this idea because my kid does see a black dentist. And it just seems so therapeutic and internalized rather than like real policy change. And it it frustrates me. And I don't think that that can be evaded by sort of being, well, if there were no conservative people in the electorate, then you wouldn't need to make these trade-offs. So I don't want to, um, I mean, I obviously want to out-debate you, but I don't want to do it <laughs> while missing your points. Um, but let me try to tell you why I'm why I am grounding this in the actual like what I think of as the realities of the electorate, mm-hmm. which is that there is a lot happening at any given moment in American politics. And like to the extent what you want me to say is I don't think white fragility is as good a book as other people think it is. Like I don't think white fragility is as good a book as many white liberals think it is. Like I think it is. I agree with you. It is overly introspective as it, in terms of its approach to politics um, and, and overly based on kind of like internal consciousness raising. You've brought up a number of different points in this, and I think they go in a number of different directions. But in terms of whether or not, like to me, there are a couple of things Ross is saying and clearly that you are saying here. But one of them is that we are seeing in this identity-based mobilization and the power of this identity-based mobilization that class-based politics and left-wing economic solutions are going to get co-opted into corporations putting black squares on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Like that's fundamentally the argument here, or it's going to get co-opted into white people having a book club in which they read a white author talking about how white people should feel bad about their racism um, with Robin DeAngelo. Yes, that's my biggest concern. That is your that is what you are saying. And I am saying that I don't think that is true. 
I think there is a direct connection actually that is often ignored by people in politics between folks trying to like raise individual consciousness and then supporting ideas that align with that. I think that if you are a white person who is like red white fragility, you are going to be more likely to support a number of different left wing economic ideas that are going to be both like crafted and sold in a more race conscious way. I'll give an example a little bit outside of this space because I think it in some ways is clearer. There is a continuous debate in the climate change world about whether or not anybody should be asked to make like any individual changes or like feel any individual weight in terms of their carbon output whatsoever. Like this comes up constantly in a space that I'm particularly interested in, which is meat consumption, mm -hmm. right? Like where like on one hand, Jonathan Safran Foer is telling you to feel bad about how much meat you're eating because like you are the weather. And then like the nation is running a long piece attacking Jonathan Safran Foer for doing this, even though Jonathan Safran Foer is the first person to say you need systemic policy solutions. And like my view is that people do not vote for things that make them feel bad about their pre-existing values and commitments. That like they need to do personal work so there is not cognitive dissonance between how they are voting and who they think they are. They vote like you know this literature and like it's very present in my thinking. Voting is much more about identity expression than it is about like personal material self-interest. Like we know that that has been tested a billion times now. And so I think these things come together. Now the place where it would not come together. The, the reason I am fighting on this point is a place where it would not come together is if it were true that, in fact, the left wing part of the like grid in American politics was also like racially resentful. But that's not true. Like the reason it is important that it is the same people who are really racially woke who are also economically left is that that allows you to have an agenda that pulls these things together and allows you to turn identity-based mobilization on these issues into class-based politics. And one thing I would say in addition to that is that we have an example of this happening in reverse for decades now. I think you and I basically both agree that the Republican Party is an engine that turns white identity politics and backlash politics into energy that is used to cut taxes for rich people. Yes. Like that is like fundamentally the structure of the Republican Party. And I would say that the Democratic Party, to some degree, is developing not the same structure in reverse, but something that is at least somewhat um, similar, which is that there is clearly a lot of identity-based mobilization that then is, I think over time, if you look at who seems to be the candidates who are leading this movement is going to get turned into a lot of like economic and climate policy. And they those things will be written correctly with more of a racial justice and race conscious component, right? That's a very big part of the Green New Deal. But it is not the case that I think it's going to get co-opted. And I could be wrong, but as this generation, like um, if it just gets co-opted into like corporate Instagram squares, it will be because as this like younger generation got richer as has happened in some other generations, they became more conservative and became like more concerned about giving things up. But I think if you look at the politics right now, people want to create attention that that isn't there. And I just don't agree that like the individual stuff doesn't have a, a connection to the heavier stuff. I'll just note something from a piece actually that you did a while ago, but but it just came up in a piece I did. So in 94, you have 39% of Democrats and 26% of Republicans saying discrimination was the main reason Black Americans had trouble getting ahead. 39% of Democrats and 26% of Republicans. In 2017, 64% of Democrats agreed with that 
that statement. And only 14% of Republicans said the same. So a 13-point difference over whether discrimination is what you should blame for racial inequality became a 50-point difference. And like, I think we both know that that argument that like, this is just a personal responsibility problem. Systemic racism has no role in this at all, has been continuously used to foil a left-wing agenda in American politics like forever, right? It has been the single most potent weapon against um, any kind of big class-based policy. It's what Alberto Alessina and Ed Glazer find. It helps explain why we don't have a European social welfare state. And as the Democratic Party really changes its view on that, moving from a minority to a majority, saying structural discrimination is the issue here, like I think the kinds of things that led to, say, Bill Clinton being skeptical of a lot of those programs weaken. And so, like, Joe Biden is now way to Clinton's left on economics, too. Like, I don't think these are are, are in opposition tendencies. I think it's, like, changing in a way that is going to make both of these sides more possible. But maybe I'm just an optimist on this right now. You are an optimist. Well, okay. So let's take a break, because I think you actually uh, left us with a testable thesis, which is we could try to get somebody to randomly assign reading of white fragility to people and then survey them on unrelated economic policy questions later and and possibly see this. Um, But I I want to take a break and and talk about polarization, uh, which you wrote about and, and which is interesting. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. So one of the things that we are definitely seeing here, right? I mean, I think clear point of agreement is a real surge in the level of interest among like white liberals in racial justice topics. Um, I am uh, quarantining in Maine, uh, but trying to read local newspapers, see what's going on. And there was like a a Black Lives Matter march recently in the town of Castine, uh, which is near where I'm staying. Uh, this is like an all-white town, as are the vast majority of towns in Maine. But it was organized by, I think, like some college students who are at home due to the pandemic. And, you know, a bunch of people, I mean, it's not a large number of people because it's a tiny town, like they turned out. And that is a 
a sea change. It's part of a sort of a, a double movement in politics that's been happening in Maine over the past few years, which is the Democratic Party has come to be more clearly associated in people's minds with racial justice concerns. And that has helped move a lot of white people, particularly older, particularly non-college graduated white people, into the Republican Party. And, and this state, which is incredibly white, has become more GOP-friendly, uh, markedly so, o- over the past 10 years as a result of that. Uh, but then what you saw in Castine is the flip side of that, right, which is increasing engagement by white people who live in white places, who just identify in general with liberal politics and with the Democratic Party are marching in the streets for this in a you can make fun of them almost because it's like, what is this issue even about in that local context? But I think to take it seriously, right, it's people are fired up about racial justice, even when it doesn't necessarily impact them in a super personal, direct way. They really care about this. And it's part of their personal identity formation, right? And and that, at least if I was reading you correctly, I mean, that's what you were calling on the site today, one of the, the upsides of polarization, that you have a, a bigger group of people fighting for the principle that Black Lives Matter, in part because the political system has become more polarized. Yes. Um, let me think about how to say this clearly, because it's a little bit of a, a, a tricky point. Polarization has been driven in this country, party polarization, over the past 50 years by race and then by ideology. So the Civil Rights Act, you know, collapsed this sort of four-party system we had where you had conservative, racist, Dixiecrats in the Democratic Party and northern liberals in the Republican Party. The Civil Rights Act began to unwind that coalition. And so, like, over time, the Democratic Party became um, – it's about 50 percent non-white now. The Republican Party is 90 percent white. The Democratic Party is very liberal. It's 50 percent liberal. Um, Republican Party is 75 percent conservative. You, you just don't have the mixed parties you used to have. A big argument of my book is it's something people miss about polarization, is the alternative to polarization is often not agreement, right? The Not having polarization doesn't mean we don't have disagreements. What it often means is that the incentive is to suppress disagreement. And by the way, you can really see how that played out in the first half of the 20th century in Democratic Party politics. So you had Democrats there who were pro-civil rights, and they wanted to do anti-lynching laws, they wanted to do civil rights laws, they wanted to do voting rights laws. But because you also had a lot of Democrats who were uh, Dixiecrat segregationists, they bottled all that up. They stopped it in the House Rules Committee. They stopped it in the Senate through the filibuster. They made internal deals to not let it happen. And you can see some of this like even in Joe Biden, how Joe Biden talks. Like He came to Congress after this had begun ending, but still you had a lot of um, these sort of holdover segregation senators like in the Democratic Party. And he was working with them because he was a Democrat. And to keep good relations, like you had to take them seriously, right? And so Biden both reflecting the politics of his time, but also the the coalitional needs of that, uh, or, or the incentives, I guess you would call it, of that era, you know, like works with these guys on busing and things like this. So that changes. Um, it really excel at, like the change really completes itself in the Obama and then into the Trump eras. 
And so now what you have is an incentive, particularly in the Democratic Party, to front load issues of racial progress, of racial equity, of racial injustice. And by the way, in the Republican Party, and Donald Trump is a, is a symptom or an expression of this, to front load issues of racial backlash, of, 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 of white feelings of resentment and like that they are being threatened. So you have a higher level of day-to-day racial conflict existing between the parties than you did because the parties previously didn't want to fight on that axis because it split their internal coalitions. It made like Northern Republicans mad at the like Western Republicans. It made, um, you know, Northern Democrats mad at the Southern Democrats, right? So they like would push that stuff down. But that changed. And so now they bring it up. Like this is part of what you're noticing in the first part of our conversation, Matt, which is like, like there's a lot of liberal signaling around racial justice. And that's in part because racial justice has become a very big part of the liberal identity. You wrote in your piece a couple years ago on the Great Awakening, you noted that it's a, it's a, it's a striking trend of the era that on many racial issues, white liberals now survey as to the left of black Democrats or Hispanic Democrats. And that's because to be a white liberal in the Democratic Party, that identity is very heavily based on a commitment to racial equity, a commitment to righting racial injustice. And so this is a way, um, two things I think flow out of this. One is that Polarization for all its problems, and I have talked about the problems it poses for our institutions before, it does create the conditions to have conflicts in American life that we need to have and that have been in other times suppressed uh, for way too long. Um, So that's one thing, right? Like Joe Biden, if you listen to his statements since uh, the death of George Floyd or the murder of George Floyd, he has not been trying to play this down. He has not been trying to like put it to the side. He's been actually trying to like say like, this is something we need to address. The pain here is too much for any one community to bear. He actually, he said, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he said basically that for white people to remain silent at this time is to become part of systemic violence, right? He's been very explicit on this in a way that really, given his own career, represents how far the Democratic Party has moved on this. But the other thing that I think you see here that I think is really underplayed in American politics Identity politics is almost always framed as a politics of exclusion, like it is denying us a shared ground upon which to build a politics. And you really see here that that isn't true. So 92% of white Democrats express support for Black Lives Matter, um, as I should say, by the way, 40 to 40% of Republicans. But what you're seeing there is like the Democratic Party, which has begun for a lot of different reasons to and in a lot of different like mechanisms to take the idea that being black in America is a systematically different experience of being white in America and that there are structural barriers to succeeding that don't exist for white Americans. As it has taken that seriously, it is like de-siloed an identity and has allowed at least a certain portion of the white electorate to fuse into that identity through values, right? To say like, I think that is unfair and I want part of my political identity to be that I am somebody who believes that is unjust. And so you then begin to build a political coalition that has the strength to fight on this issue. Now, for all kinds of reasons, like, will we get the level of change that people who are out protesting want here? I don't think we will quickly. I mean, we've talked a million times on the show about the filibuster and, you know, electoral college um, malapportionment and all of that. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the general rule in America is you, 
you, you, you never you're never going to get what you want. Exactly. But the first step is you need coalitions willing to fight for things. And one thing that polarization identity politics have ha, have done here is create a Democratic Party coalition willing to fight on these issues and willing to raise them up and escalate around them such that you could have a much more multi-ethnic movement here than you've had on these issues in the past. Yes, I, I think that that is true. And I think also in some ways it's a good segue into the Veep stakes. So let's 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 take a break and and think about that because uh, you know it, it's definitely part of the calculus here. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called "The Future of Work," where I answer all your questions on surprise, the future of work. Questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. So there have been some actual changes in the Veep stakes in the past couple of weeks. And, and as you say, they, they reflect some of this. So Amy Klobuchar dropped out and she dropped out on MSNBC. She dropped out publicly. And I think it is understood that she dropped out because she's from Minnesota and her prosecutorial record, while it's a little bit unclear what happened here, she was just not going to be the right pick for this moment. But she drops out in MSNBC and she says that she thinks it is time for, um, she thinks for this moment Biden should pick a woman of color. And so she's withdrawing from consideration in, in order to help that along, which I think one should more or less understand uh, simultaneously, like Amy Klobuchar trying to signal uh, in the modern Democratic Party that she's on the side of racial justice and potentially to knife Elizabeth Warren, who is like the other leading white um, female candidate uh, who, who who might be picked. But so now there's like a, a big question over like what it means. And this might be, Matt, to be honest, where you actually get into more of the tensions you were talking about at the top of the show. Because if you look at who are the leading African-American candidates, it's like far and away from inside reporting, it appears to be Kamala Harris, just because like she's best known on the on the national scene. But she's a lot more conservative than Elizabeth Warren is, um, like much like much less of a systematic, like economically left thinker. Um, Val Demings, uh, who's a, a member of the House and, and was previously in law enforcement, is another uh, candidate who's getting attention. Stacey Abrams has been talked about a lot. From what we can tell from inside reporting, she doesn't seem to be at the lead of the Veep stakes, uh, possibly just because her, as sort of, I'm a very big Stacey Abrams fan. I will say, I think she's one of the most impressive politicians I have spoken to. She's just incredibly, incredibly brilliant. But my sense is the Biden team thinks that um, Georgia minority Senate leader is just like not going to read to people as like a ready on day one president. But but I don't know. But so the, the feeling is that she is not um, uh, in, in, the, in the lead role there, although that could always change. So around that, there's now been this like fight by people on the left to try to like push the idea that Warren is the right candidate. Um, there's a lot of like polling command coming out of data for progress um, that shows that Warren is more popular among both like young Americans and particularly young African Americans. And so maybe she would do right. more to help the ticket with black Americans. I would say the polling in general shows that vice presidents do not do much for the ticket one way or another. Um, Alexander Agajanian and Brian Schaffner, um, who are political scientists, they uh, did some polling using Civis and data for progress. And they basically showed in their poll that 
versus Kamala Harris, Warren maybe cost the ticket 0.3 percentage points of the vote, but also that's so small that like that's statistically meaningless. It may be that she actually helps it and they can't tell. So it just like doesn't seem like the different candidates matter much here at all. Um, and so you may just want to pick the person who Joe Biden gets along with and thinks would be a good president in the case of his untimely death or retirement. But there is like a tension here between the representational candidates who are, are 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 women of color, but I think are more conservative at this point, or, or more centrist, maybe we should say, than the leading um, candidate who's a white woman. And also, I mean, to to your point earlier, right? It's not like you couldn't pick an African American leftist, like if yes. you wanted to, right? And in general, of course, as you were saying, like African Americans in America are more left wing than white people are. But in a practical sense, right, a tension has arisen here in which people on the left are trying to push Elizabeth Warren because she is left wing. And it seems unquestionable that if it is not Warren, it will be somebody who is seen as decidedly more moderate than Warren. And that possibly one of the stated reasons for that other person is going to be a desire to bring African-American representation into the ticket. And it's not like you couldn't square that circle, but like you won't square that circle, right? And right. It's, you, could, you could name Barbara Lee vice president. Exactly. But right, but she's not being vetted. Um, and, you know, so that that's going to be sort of one factor here. You know, stepping back, it's like I... Um, when I was driving up uh, up to Maine, I, I drove past the the law firm of Hale and Hamlin, uh, which was founded, I believe, by Hannibal Hamlin, who was Abraham Lincoln's vice president in his first term. And very I, impressed I, by how many main facts you're getting into this podcast. I'm putting it all in. I also have an article about the lobster bailout that should be coming soon. So it's all I'm getting things done. You think about Abraham Lincoln, right? And like he's he's the greatest president, right? Um, but one of the decisions he makes is he dumps Hamlin from the ticket in 1864 because he decides that he needs to get a Democrat, like a, a pro-war Democrat, onto the ticket to help him win the election. So he he dumps Hamlin. He picks Andrew Johnson. Uh, the election turns out to not be close because Sherman takes Atlanta. Uh, he's reelected, but then he gets assassinated and Andrew Johnson becomes president. And Everybody thinks Andrew Johnson was a terrible president, right? I mean, you want to talk about the legacy of systemic racism, and so much of it goes back, not per se to slavery, but to the very poorly handled post-war Reconstruction, a lot of which comes back to Johnson, a lot of which comes back to Lincoln opting for electoral opportunism rather than who would be a good president, right? And... You see so much of that in presidential politics, right? This is seen overwhelmingly through a kind of electoral politics lens, whether that's, oh, this person will help me in my home state, or, oh, I like the message that it sends, or this kind of like superficial coalitional politics of Elizabeth Warren will make the left happy, or Kamala Harris will make African Americans happy. And I, I really do think it's not like, totally put politics aside and just pick someone you think is smart. But think about the substance, which is, you know, that person will be a member of your administration, but also that person is very likely to become a future Democratic Party nominee, right? And that's not just because presidents die, right? It's like, why is Joe Biden the nominee now? 
He has a lot of virtues as a politician, but it's obvious that like if Obama had picked Evan Bayh back in 2008, there is no way Biden would be the nominee in 2020. And like, that's the reality that Joe Biden should be thinking about when he picks this choice. It's like, who would be a good standard bearer for the future? You know, so I think that's why, like, if you're left wing, it it makes a lot of sense to be pushing Elizabeth Warren uh, with poll based arguments that don't 100% make sense. Uh, because what's most important is the substance. Uh, if you like Elizabeth Warren, if you think she'd be a good president, uh, getting her made VP should be a high priority. But the decision is often made for sort of not great reasons. So arguments are being made on her behalf that that themselves are not that great. And it's worth saying that there is a lot of political science and survey evidence on this. And as far as we can tell, vice presidential picks do not affect national voting. There is some evidence, and I don't think it's that strong anymore, but but it is there, so you would want to at least like consider it. They could affect um home state polling, right? So they could affect home state outcomes. So, you know, you might want to uh pick Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin, because Wisconsin is really important, or um Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. The problem with doing that, not so much with Gretchen Whitmer as a governor, but but with Tammy Baldwin, who's a senator, is that for the exact same reason that you would care about winning their home state because their home state is purplish, you don't want to lose a senator, a Democratic senator from that state. And so like that knocks out or doesn't knock out because Tammy Baldwin is, to my knowledge, being vetted um, or the very least uh, seriously considered. But that that does create real questions about uh, on the margin, like you're making Joe Biden's agenda somewhat less likely to succeed to pick a vice president to to help him win um when it's probably going to be a pretty small effect whereas Kamala Harris and and Elizabeth Warren sort of whatever happens with them in polling Massachusetts and California are not in play and so it is just pretty unlikely that either of them will be a, a, a huge effect. I mean, I've heard people say, like, I think um, Rachel Bitkoffer says, like, the vice presidential pick will decide the election. But, like, I just I don't think that's what the evidence here suggests. So then you get into this question. I, I do think Joe Biden gets a lot of what we're saying here. Like, my understanding of, like, how he thinks about this process is he's perfectly aware that he's very old <laughs> and he thinks of himself as a transitional figure. One thing about Joe Biden, I think that is helpful sometimes is that he's a reasonably self-aware person, which is why he is very open to like very unusual forms of coalitional politics that other candidates are not as open to, like the Bernie Sanders task forces and, and other things. Like Joe Biden has a sense of who Joe Biden is and who he isn't. And one thing Joe Biden is, is somebody who's been around American politics for so long that he just takes it all very seriously. You, if you think back to the debates, you would often have somebody on the stage making like a very expansive executive authority argument. They would clearly have just been good politics for Joe Biden, who supported whatever that end was to say, I would do that too. But he would go off on this sort of thing about how it wasn't constitutional and the executive can't do that. Like Joe Biden takes his stuff. He's like very earnest about government. And so I think he is trying to think about who will do the job best. And like Joe Biden is a center left guy, right? He's not. I mean, Elizabeth Warren never like took the knife to him in the way people expected her to, given their long running fights over bankruptcy. And ultimately, Joe Biden ended up supporting her bankruptcy bill. But she's like a lot more left than he is. And whereas like Kamala Harris is actually a little bit more in the Joe Biden lineage, though probably also more left in some important ways than he is. But 
certainly has more of his approach to politics and like his theory of the electorate, right? Like Kamala Harris isn't like a political revolutionary. She's a um a coalitional politician. And then there's just a question of of, of who they like. I mean, there's this quite like I like I'm a big Elizabeth Warren fan and, and always have been because I think she's an incredibly capable politician, both at like the the policy crafting and ideology crafting level, but also really importantly in her ability to manage and execute the the work of government. But in terms of who's going to be a good vice president um, and possibly even a good successor, it really matters who Joe Biden is willing to work with and bring into his administration in a real way, such that you don't get a situation where you have a frozen out vice president, um, as you have in many past administrations. And so like, then you also get into this issue, which like I can't evaluate from the outside, which is who does Joe Biden feel comfortable with? Who does he like working with? Who would he actually want to have in the room? There's reporting coming out of the New York Times um, today that Tam Amy Duckworth, um, who's a, a senator, a military veteran, a, a, an amputee from a, a plane crash um, in, in Iraq, that she is like moving forward in the Veep stakes in a pretty profound way, that she's done great in the interviews with them. They're vetting her pretty seriously. So this could also end with a, a more surprise pick who's somebody that Joe Biden really likes and just would really want to, to, to be there, somebody he would feel really good passing power to, but also because this is how he's going to be thinking more immediately, sharing power with. Yeah, I mean, an interesting thing about about Biden and Warren, why I don't 100% write it off, although, I mean, I, I, I agree with you about the, the clash in their styles, but something that wasn't present so much during Biden's career as a senator was the technology industry as like such a thing. Right, such a such a kind of force in politics and society. And at least like what I've heard from from reporting from people who know him and who knew the Obama White House is that he did not share some of the Obama team's enthusiasm for the technology industry as a as a thing. And that that was in part on a on a personal level, you know, more than a, a policy level but that it has made him much more open to sort of left policy critiques of big tech than he was necessarily of like left policy critiques of the credit card industry which was from a state that he represented and was such a you know that was such a such a specific flashpoint between him and Warren was that at the time she was a bankruptcy law specialist and at the time he was a senator from a state one of whose major home state employers was a credit card issuer and that you know it sort of defined them. I mean, I wrote a big piece, right, of like hanging their whole relationship around this narrative arc. Um, but like the world has to an extent moved on. It's like a long time since Biden was a senator from Delaware and also a long time since Elizabeth Warren was a was a bankruptcy attorney. So, you know, there are sort of places there where, where I think they might connect, depending on if he wants to take in that direction. Uh, personally, I've been sort of taken with the Baldwin idea. Um, I was like glad to see this this Times article, but then I did try to check myself because it's like the re all the reasons I could give for why I really liked the Tammy Baldwin idea were sort of meta narrative reasons, you know, like her life story and her family story is such a great American story, you know, like one parent is an immigrant, the other parent is like descended from the Mayflower, uh, served in in wartime, was injured, was the first senator to to give birth while serving. It's Wait, like you're, you're talking, you're hey, Matt, you're talking about Tammy Duckworth, not Tammy Baldwin, right? Yes. Did I say Duckworth? 
No, but that's Sorry. okay. We, 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 know, we, we know what you mean. Yes. Okay. Um, but then it's, it's like- It's actually okay. an unusual number of Tammies for a vice presidential sweepstakes. There's, a lot, there's a, a lot of Tammies in there. Uh, it is definitely the closest we have ever gotten to having a Tammy in uh, a national ticket. Um, and then I think it was, it was like, well, okay, are any of those reasons like good reasons? And they are reasons to think that Tammy Duckworth might be a good presidential candidate in the future, possibly, uh, just because like she has a cool story. Uh, but then I, I'm begging ignorance. Like this is not a criticism of her, but like I don't actually know that much about like what does she think? Like what does she do? She's not on the list of senators. I've had the chance to sit in their office and talk to them about. She doesn't have a super clear policy profile on on anything. Um, so then I like loop back around to like yeah. Like, you should really think about, like, people's ideas. And even, I feel like the the impulse to, like, say, reject Stacey Abrams on the grounds that her resume isn't thick enough. I mean, I think that that, like, sounds high-minded, but I would, like, also look beyond it if there's somebody, whether it's her or, like, a mayor of some city or, or anybody that, like... I don't know, like, how much do people really care about these resume type issues? Like, I think like, post Trump, we can have a sort of different bar for for how we think about like, who is qualified. Yeah, I think the thing that ends up in a lot of their heads right now, I, I know that within the Biden campaign and people giving them advice, there's just like a constant watchword, do not pick a Sarah Palin. But I think people conflate Sarah Palin's like, total lack of capability for the job with inexperience. She actually was not a crazily inexperienced pick. She was the governor of Alaska. Whereas like Stacey Abrams, who like just like she is not as high, like she does not have a higher position because she's in a more red state than other Democrats. But by that like very nature, that like makes her like that gives her a different perspective on the country that is maybe valuable for a national ticket. Stacey Abrams uh, is incredible incredibly, incredibly capable. Like, really, like I, I have interviewed a lot of politicians. I've interviewed a lot of the politicians on this list. Abrams is a, certainly, in my view, like among the best uh, on this. She is like, there's a lot of depth there. Um, right, like Sarah Palin's resume was fine. Like, I, I think that's actually, you're right. That's like, my that's point. People forget. She was the mayor and then she was the governor of a state. The problem was her interview with Katie Couric made her seem like an idiot. And like Stacey Abrams, I mean, you can also have critiques of her, but like her interviews are fantastic. So, you know, yes, why and, not? And, and so anyway, so they'll, they'll have to make the pick they make. But, um, but yeah, I, I think the question really that, Biden should be thinking about and probably is thinking about is like, first and foremost, who is he willing to share power with? Because that's going to be really important. And thinking about like, who's going to be prepared to be president, the person who is actually heavily involved in a presidential administration is going to be the person prepared to be president. Like there's no better training than to be a heavily involved vice president. So like, that's going to be number one. He's going to not, he's going to got to be somebody he does not want to lock out of the room. Um, and then, which is like been the norm for much of American history. And then number two, like, who does he think would be a capable of stepping into that role? Like quickly if need be, and after him if need be. And, you know, like he should, he should not worry so much about the politics of it because I think the evidence is that unless he like makes a disastrous pick a la Palin, um, the politics of it are, are fine. Awesome. Okay, um, so let's uh, let's let's wrap it up there. Um, thanks, Ezra. Thanks to our sponsors, as always. And thanks to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the Weeds will be back on Tuesday.
In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.